It is Tuesday, April 20th. I can't even believe Tuesday, April 20th. This is the macro setup. I'm Guy Adami, joined as always by my dear friend, Dan Nathan. Today's presenting sponsor is Nadex, one of the fastest growing exchanges in North America for binary options, call spreads, and knockouts. Dan, we'll get to that later. Dan Nathan, how are you today? Doing well, Guy Adami. Lots going on. I mean, it feels like there's just been a sea of red in the financial markets over the last day. And the irony is it's like literally down like 1%, the stock yeah. market. It doesn't It doesn't really feel like a sell-off, does it? Yeah, no, Guy? it doesn't. And I'm fired up because later, and when I say later, within the next like 10 minutes, we're going to bring on Peter Bookbar, who you know I dig, I know you dig. And by the way, everybody at Nadex should dig as well. But look, Let's talk about this because obviously we're in the midst of a bit of a sell-off. It's been interesting over the last couple of weeks. We've seen the VIX go, break that 21 support level, traded below 17. We're going to talk about that later as well. But what's catching your eye on this fine Tuesday, Dan, Nathan? Yeah, so I always find that earnings season is just obviously a really good time to kind of read. I don't know, take some stock, let's say, of where we are uh, broadly from a macro standpoint. We're getting a lot of micro inputs, um, you know, a lot of companies kind of giving their guidance here. I don't think it's as important as like kind of the backward looking stuff for the quarter they're just reporting. But like, for instance, here's just a headline from the Wall Street Journal today, Procter & Gamble, they're going to raise prices in September. Guy, you've been talking a little bit about inflation. We're going to just see how um, corporate America is able to pass through increased input costs to consumers and what that does to consumer spending so that's something that is on my radar as right we get into the can i ask you a question what yeah. what i mentioned it you know literally 90 seconds ago but what month are we in now dan we're in april it's april 20th guys it's april 20th and and when when are they raising prices what month september guys. september so what does that mean listen i mean the fed we're going to talk about transitory and all this nonsense yeah. but you know yeah. that they're, they're talking about raising prices in september clearly they see something I know you sort of glossed over the adult diapers because you didn't want to embarrass me, but that's another story All for right. another day. But no, listen, inflation is here in spades. Peter will probably speak to that, but this is just one more anecdotal thing. And when you layer this upon all the different companies we've heard from over the last month, month and a half, in terms of raising prices, uh, Houston, we have a problem, and it's manifesting well, itself in higher prices. You know what Fed Chair Powell might have to say? I don't really particularly care what he if has he to were say. To if, see this, if, he, if he were to see this headline, he may say, wake me up when September ends. Okay, Here, here's another one um, that I think is not catching a lot of attention. You know, this was an Axios, and I actually wanted to bring this up a couple of weeks ago on the macro setup. And I didn't, you know, I feel like anytime you have a pundit talking about geopolitical risk and what that might mean for the market, and especially if you're one who's leaning for a lower market here, when you bring up these sorts of headlines, it seems, you know, it seems a, a little bit, um, you know, I, I don't know, like you're trying to a scare tactic or so. But, you know, this is one where if you're just reading this sort of stuff and you're saying, wow, China and Taiwan and the Russians with Ukraine and the Israelis and our view um, with Iran, like, there's a lot of stuff going on all at once. And don't also forget that new presidents often get tested on a geo uh, geopolitical basis, you know, early one, two years into their um, administration. This is one which I think is worth paying attention to. You think it matters for markets, the global economy? Does it have the potential to further disrupt supply chains? What's on your mind, geopolitically, Guy? I, we've actually brought this up on Fast Money, and we've brought this up on the macro setup. I, mean, I think we said specifically the situation between you know Russia and Ukraine was something worth watching. Obviously, yeah. 
Iran's never gone away. And the situation in China, I mean, nothing's changed. I mean, maybe it's sort of escalated a bit, but that's been going on, it's been going on for the last five or six years. And to your point about um, countries testing new presidents within the first couple of years, I mean, now it's within the first couple of months. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. The market has not cared about it. Why do I know that? Because again, the VIX has gone from basically, you know, mid 20s yeah. down to 17. So clearly the VIX is telling you one story, but the market absolutely should care about these things because they're not going away. They're just going to escalate. And at some point, I think it will manifest itself in price disruptions, not only in supply chains, which you mentioned, but in markets as well, Dan. Yeah. And so then the last point I'll just make here as we're kind of doing a little scroll of some head uh, headlines here. You I like know, we doing talk, the scroll. Yes, talk, I like that. You're doing a we, nice we job. We talk about the markets in a sell-off. I mean, literally, we're down 1% in two days in the S&P 500. It doesn't really feel like a sell-off. It feels like uh, a little bit of a rounding error when you consider the performance over the last 14 months off the lows. Um, but I think this headline is kind of interesting from Bloomberg uh, about a, a large hedge fund. This is a, a UK-based hedge fund, Marshall Waste. Um, you know, warning of a SPAC blow up after they've already invested a billion dollars in SPACs. And we're seeing this in the public markets um, here in the U.S. You're seeing a lot of SPACs looking for targets as they look for private targets to bring public. But you're also seeing a lot of these recent SPACs that have not, they've already on the exchanges here in the U.S. trading very poorly or deals that have de-SPAC'd um, and they're new publicly traded companies. They're not trading particularly well. So I think that's um, definitely of an issue. There's a lot of supply um, that's come to market. And obviously there's been some huge, huge IPOs in the tech space over the last you know, three or four months. We know Coinbase last week, but we saw Airbnb, uh, DoorDash, and there was a few others. So lots of spl- uh, supply has come on with the markets at the highs. And then the last one I'll just mention this is that you know this is also as um, hundreds of billions of dollars have moved into the crypto space, also very speculative over that same period of time. Any thoughts here? I know that uh, we're going to hit Bitcoin and Ethereum and the charts really quickly later, but what this means from a speculative standpoint, because we've seen a pullback in crypto off an all-time high over the last few trading days. Well, you can speak to SPACs a lot more intelligently yeah. than I can, but you know I think one of the one of the mandates, one of the things about a SPAC, and you know this is. That clock starts ticking. Once you create that group, you have two years to find an acquisition target and to close that deal. And, you know, the clock's been ticking for a while now. So what does that mean? Well, for every acquisition target, there are probably 15 or 20 SPACs looking for one. And my math is probably off, but you understand what I'm saying. I do. And by definition, that supply-demand imbalance is going to create valuations that don't make a lot of sense, which is probably why you're seeing these things trade poorly as they become publicly traded companies, I would imagine. Number two, you mentioned Bitcoin. You know, for every Bitcoin guy and gal out there, they'll say about a non-correlated asset. Well, there is no such thing as a non-correlated asset. I think actually the sell-off we've seen over the last 24 to 48 hours in the broader equity markets speak to exactly what happened over the weekend in Bitcoin. And there'll be people that say you're nuts. And that's probably, there's some truth to that. But Everything is correlated. And for all the leverage we've seen in the equity markets, all the leverage we've seen with some of these funds, don't think that leverage doesn't exist in cryptocurrencies. And you know what? Uh, Margin calls happen in everything. And to a certain extent, we might be seeing it here in crypto, Dan. Yeah, definitely. Hey, so so guy, I'm gonna do something right now. I'm gonna I am gonna turn things up. I'm gonna hey Peter, pay attention here, buddy. 
I am going to, I'm sick of listening to you. I think some of the folks are probably listening to me. We got Peter Bookvar, who's the Bring him in, CIO of the Bleakly Advisory Group. He is also the author of the renowned book report. This is a great, great follow. Peter is a dear friend of ours. You know him, you see him on CNBC a lot. He's been on the macro setup a few times. Before we get to all of the charts, let's just bring Peter in. Bring Peter, him in. Anything, any thought, welcome, first things first. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate this. I love chatting with you both. You see, wait, stop for a second. The humility, <laughs> see the humility with which he comes. I mean, that speaks volumes as the type of person Peter is. There are very few people that do as thoughtful work as yeah. Peter does. And it's not because it's not because I sort of he lines up with everything that I thought of last year. It's because he does extraordinarily thoughtful work. And again, it's it's great. It's refreshing to see somebody with that kind of humility level just by the way he comes in. And says hello to us, Dan Nathan. That is a fact. Well, he also is is a uh, I think he's a unique investor slash strategist because he actually puts together a lot of different inputs. Um, he thinks about things from a macro level. He looks from the micro. Uh, he kind of works up and meets in the middle. He uses technicals. He does. He looks at. He pours over. If you look at the book report, he's pouring over every piece of economic data that comes out there. And then during earnings season, he's also listening to calls and reading. So Peter. You are a workhorse. I suspect you're going to be very, very busy over the next couple of weeks. We want to hit some charts here. So just chime in whenever. This is what we do on the macro setup. We rip through some stuff. We have some very special charts for you as we get through it. But I just want to show this S&P 500 chart. You see that really nice uptrend from the March 2020 lows. It's bounced off it a few times. It appears that it's gone parabolic in the last couple months here. You know, we have that 200-day moving average down there um, just above 3,600, which was all also, basically, just above that September 2nd high, the last time we really had this really sentiment, like this euphoric sort of peak into the end of the summer, and then a sharp pullback. What is that S&P 500 chart looking to you? Does it have the ability to keep going higher? Or are we likely to see a pullback to that uptrend? And then possibly, if some of those headlines that we were just talking about, and speak to any of those headlines we just talked about, do they cause the potential for a break of that uptrend and a retest of that 200-day moving average in the S&P 500? So, so as of Friday's close, the S&P closed at about 16% above its 200-day moving average. And what we've seen over the last couple of years in particular is that that 16 to 17% has sort of been a real stretch uh, above where it's usually a precursor to, to a give back. But you add on to that, two weeks ago in the AAII, in Individual Investor uh, Survey of Bulls and Bears, Bulls got to the highest level since January 2018, right before the vol trade blew up. Mm -hmm. The investors' intelligence uh, data point, which measures more of the so-called professional investors, we got bulls close to 65. Usually anything above 60 is considered stretch. I'm actually closer to 64, and bears at about 16 and a half. And when you get such a wide spread between the two of close to 50, that is very stretched. Then you throw in relative strength indices, that have gotten extremely overbought. And I think you all combine that for what was potentially a vulnerable situation. The question was, what was the, the, the catalyst? Now, taking a step back, we've seen also a sharp rise in interest rates, as we know, this year. In fact, uh, as of this morning, when the tenure was at 160 versus 90 basis points in December, that's a 70 basis point increase. That's like almost three Federal Reserve rate hikes that we've had. So when you get a change interest rate landscape, that is a different backdrop for the overall markets that are so used to very low interest rates. 
So, so let's. I'm sorry. No, and I was going to say, Peter, I apologize. What I was going to say was, all right, so th- there'd be people, that, listen, the Fed chair has said valuations don't matter. He didn't say it in, in so many words, but he basically said it a few months ago in terms of in this interest rate environment, you, know, you can throw sort of valuations out the window. Here's my question to you. There are a lot of people, let's just use a round number that, you know, S&P 500 earnings are coming around 200 or so. At a 1.6 tenure, by the way, which I think is going higher, but let's just play the game. What's the right multiple, given everything that you've learned and everything you see, what's the right multiple uh, in this environment? Well, that is the most difficult question to answer. One of the things that I talked about going into this year is that with the vaccine, we know where the economy and earnings, the trajectory are going. They're going up. The most difficult thing to figure out this year is what is the right multiple to put on that stream of earnings? And while you can look at historical levels of interest rates and say, okay, we should trade at north of 20 because the 10 year is still very low. We have to also understand that it's the rate of change in interest rates that matter for that multiple. And in the context of all the debt that we have, also what that level of interest rates means as well. Because we look at the fourth quarter of 2018, all it took was a two and a half percent Fed funds rate. And we had a major hissy fit in the stock market. <laughs> So if it's going to take maybe a 10-year at getting to two, two and a half to cause that again, then why would I want to be paying north of 20 times earnings if we're going to be that sensitive to changes in interest rates that are still very low? So I argue that the multiple shouldn't be that high if we're looking at today. Yes, if you look at over the last 30, 50, whatever years, and you you can make the argument for a higher PE multiple. But we're, we're not in, 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 in that same situation, uh, again, with the level of interest rates, the sensitivity to it, and the uh, enormous amount of debt and leverage that we have in our economic system. Yeah. So, Peter, you know, a good transition from that conversation about multiples that, that investors are willing to pay. I, I have two charts here. I have the NASDAQ 100, the NDX. This is from the start of January 2020. And you can see that, you know, it was correcting or it was just going sideways for, for you know, the back half of February, most of March. And then it kind of broke out. And it just made a new all-time high. And what's interesting to me about the NDX is that we know the top six names, the FMAGA complex plus Tesla make up about 50% of the weight. Now, other than Tesla, those are all pretty reasonably priced tech stocks. If you think about it, you know, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, um, and Facebook. And they just ran, I think, as investors were getting um, a little excited into their earnings and especially after they were going sideways. But here's the other one, okay? And let's go, let's just flip to the NASDAQ composite where all those names have a much smaller weight than they do in the NASDAQ 100. And you see that the NASDAQ composite has not made a new high. And it tells you some of those higher growth, higher valuation names have not really participated that have better weights. Does that make sense? to you that sort of argument that did and i would almost make the argument that the move into the mega cap names that have that much higher weighting in the nasdaq 100 was almost defensive in a way and the fact is that we're seeing a lot of those pandemic winners whether they be the zooms and the fastlies and some of those other things have actually massively corrected over the last six months or so well i think that the sell-off in both the nasdaq and the ndx weighted heavily to obviously the names that you mentioned yeah I think we can attribute that to the sharp rise in interest rates. Right. That the sharp rise in interest rates told everyone that valuation now all of a sudden matters. And while we have had this liftoff in those big cap names, 
that's taken the NDX. To your point about the NASDAQ and some of those, the, the, the Zooms and stuff, yeah, having the reopening makes you less like, less want to own some of those names. But yeah. yeah, valuation matters across the board. And, and, you know, even Apple, who's multiple doubled last year, that accounted for most of the, the rise in the stock price. Uh, we'll see when they report earnings how much valuations matter for a company that's just not growing as fast as they used to. So, like I said earlier, the change in the interest rate landscape changes the calculus and how you analyze stocks. Going up when rates are low, when stock prices going up and rates are low, who cares if you're paying 20, 30, 40, 50 times earnings? as long as rates are low, as long as the earnings trajectory going up. But once the rate backs, back uh, landscape changes, then all of a sudden those numbers begin to matter because you're like, why am I paying 50? I'd rather pay 40. Where if I'm paying 40, I'd rather pay 30 times. Well, just going from 50 back to 30, that's a pretty sharp decline in the stock price without any change in its earnings estimates. It's trading at a growth company valuation because at 27 times earnings, Next year's earnings, which basically where Apple's trading with really no significant EPS growth whatsoever. You have to ask yourself, really, what's going on here? But going back to that chart real quick, Peter, I mean, I look at it and say, you know, textbook double top. At some point, we got to test that 200-day moving average, which comes in around 12,100. Makes a lot of sense, especially when we get towards that huge earnings day on April 28th. That's in my crosshairs. My question to you as we look at the next chart, which is the Russell as mentioned, as measured by the IWM or whatever Dan decided to pull up, you know, I, I understand why it did as well as it did, the Russell, because as the economy reopens, obviously the small caps have most to gain. But on the flip side of that, they're also probably most sensitive to rise in interest rates. And I think that's the push me, pull you, um, the Dr. Doolittle thing that I think the Russell is struggling with here. And just one question I threw, I'm throwing a lot out there, I know. How insulted are you when you see Jerome Powell again on 60 Minutes effectively talking about their ability to control the uncontrollable in the form of inflation? Well, well I'll mention the Russell quickly and then I'll go to my favorite topic. The, yeah. the Russell is made up of a lot of companies that don't make money. I think a quarter to a third of the Russell 2000 companies are profitless. Well, that doesn't matter when rates are low. It doesn't matter when the Fed's cutting interest rates and whatever, but it begins to matter when, as, as interest rates rise, as we, as we talked about. Uh, so the sensitivity there to valuations really do matter. I think with, with, with Jay Powell, um, you know, there was this belief that when he became chair, even though he was a, a governor for a while, that he's this private equity guy and he's like a market guy and he, he would be different than, than the others. But, you know, he's still a lawyer at heart. And just because you work at a private equity firm as a, as a lawyer doesn't mean you're a market person, uh, even though I did notice his Bloomberg in the 60 Minutes interview. I think that that when you go into that building, you drink the Kool-Aid, you're surrounded by all these PhD economists, and you have this belief that uh, the world is like sort of a video game. And if you if you make the right moves, then you'll get some sort of, uh, of outcome that you choose. But if there's one lesson that we learned from the Japanese, from the European Central Bank that has had negative interest rates since 2014, is that their best plans doesn't lead to their preferred outcome. And now we're in a situation where central bankers, for the first time in their hopes of higher inflation, are actually beginning to see the embers of higher inflation. Not high inflation, but higher inflation. 
And when you have interest rates that are still so low, even with this recent uptick, high earn inflation means a lot. And when inflation is low, these central bankers have the license to do whatever they want. At least they believe they do. But once you start to get a turn, that begins to change. So while the Fed wants 2% inflation, in a way, they're actually hoping we don't necessarily get there because that, that changes their ability to, to, to react. That forces their hand to possibly taper sooner rather than sooner rather than later. That forces their hand to possibly raise start raising interest rates next year instead of waiting till 2024. So this year, when we look back on 2021, I really believe the main determinant of markets will be whether this inflation story is transitory or not, which I don't think it is, and where interest rates go. And quickly to your Procter & Gamble commentary before, in the press release with Procter & Gamble that led to these price increases, they specifically said that higher commodity prices in the quarter led to $150 million of higher cost than they thought. Coca-Cola, speaking of conference calls, I listened to their call yesterday, and Coca-Cola essentially has locked in their 2021 costs, but they did say 2022 is when things are a lot iffier on that cost side, uh, which will then they might respond to. Kimberly Clark, which Procter has responded to, Kimberly Clark gave Procter & Gamble the opportunity to announce the price increase because they did it uh, a few weeks ago. General Mills talked about higher prices, about taking price. Because a company, when they initially have these cost pressures, they don't immediately raise prices. They want to see whether that cost pressure is temporary. They want to see if they can absorb it through productivity because the last thing they want to do is raise prices on their products. And they certainly don't want to price themselves out, themselves out relative to their competitors. So when these companies are raising prices on things that we're buying every single day, and these are necessity products, that's telling you that these companies think that this inflation cost pressure story is not transitory. Right. But I, I would also add that the, you know, our Congress and our Treasury have also pumped in six trillion dollars in stimulus that, you know, is is meant to, you know, obviously the stimulus, the, the monetary stimulus has caused a lot of this inflation or at least the uptick in it. But maybe that the, some of this fiscal stimulus is, is due to absorb it. I, you know, listen, that, that's the other side of it here. You make a very good point. Yeah. Um, there's no but, th but that leads to the demand side. Right. That when you match up this increase in demand that's fed by a lot of fiscal stimulus with clear supply side constraints around the world, yeah. well, that's, that, that's your perfect mix of, of, of inflation. Now, one of the things that people argue that this is transitory is they say, well, a lot of these stimulus checks, they're transitory too. The extended unemployment benefits, they, they, they expire around Labor Day. These checks are going to be spent once they're spent. That's it. Keep in mind, though, when, you go, when we go into 2022, the Democrats who control Congress, they're not going to want to give up Congress. I just want to hit, um, we, we, Peter, we hit Bitcoin um, at the top for a second. And really, we're just kind of using it as an example of just, you know, some speculative kind of euphoric behavior. You look at that chart, um, it's just corrected from 64,000 down to about 56,000. Thousand over the last few trading days, it still held that uptrend pretty nice. It's still up about ninety percent um, 
on the year. And I think it's interesting that the peak to trough declines from all time highs have gotten narrower as the, as the thing has gone higher. So it's made a series of higher highs and higher lows. And I'll just mention Ethereum here. This is the one that has dramatically outperformed Bitcoin. I'm not going to talk about all the altcoins, but these are the two majors in this $2 trillion crypto economy. And you look at that, it broke out, you know, early this month here, and it's kind of held um, that prior high, which I think is interesting. So keep an eye on that 2000 uh, mark in Ethereum. Let, let, let's get to your bread and butter. Let's get to rates, because I think the, the rate situation is one of the reasons why we're even talking about crypto in 2021 here. Peter, what's your take on the U.S. Uh, Treasury uh, 10-year yield? Guy obviously thinks we're going to see two, uh, 2% in the not-so-distant future. I have a chart since the start of January 2020 here. Speak to it. Give us your, your, your outlook. I also have a, tra- a chart of the 10-year U.S. Treasury going back to 2000, the year 2000. So I want to hear you and Guy, because Guy has some obviously some strong opinions here. What's your take on yields here in the near term? And then looking back 20 years. So I think right now, it seems like the 10 years trying to carve out this one and a half, one and three quarters range after a pretty short move uh, through February into March. And I think that what will be the catalyst for a move to one and three, back to one and three quarters and then to 2% plus is when you get to June, July, August, and you're still seeing three to four tenths month over month increases in CPI. Mm-hmm. Because the market is going to put aside what we're going to see in the next couple of months. We've seen to have priced that in. But if the market senses that this rise in inflation is more sustainable. And again, we probably won't see that until June, July, August. Uh, then I think we'll, we'll, we'll sort of chop around here. But that, that, that is, the, the, to me, the recipe for move up to, to north of 2%. And you know, getting back to, again, the market response, the stock market response in the fourth quarter of 2018 to a 2.5% Fed funds rate, uh, you can only imagine what, how markets would respond to a 2% plus. And keep in mind, when you get to the summer, and if the inflation story is still rather persistent, the pressure on the Fed to taper is going to be extraordinary. And it's going to be really hard for them to avoid not tapering or at least beginning the discussions about it. Not only the Fed, but the ECB sort of has two lanes of QE. One is just their regular asset purchase program, and one is this pandemic emergency asset purchase program that goes into early part of next year. We've already had some ECB members talk about that th- that this summer into the fall, they're going to have to talk about possibly tapering that. So all of a sudden, the German tenure a day ago was at the highest level, or at least negative, since March of last year. You start to see a further rise this summer in European rates. You see persistent rises in inflation that's not transitory, you're going to see a a surprise move in interest rates to the upside that central banks are not going to necessarily are not going to be able to control. And, um, and, and, and I think that is, like I said earlier, that's going to be the story of this year and, uh, and, and, and how the stock market's going to respond to that will be noteworthy. Yeah. I listen, you know, the fact that I agree with you, I mean, it's just us now, you know, reinforcing, I don't want to use the word dogma, but our belief systems and the things that we see, it's clear that these Fed officials have to see as well. So I guess my short question is, why then would a month and a half, two months ago, Jerome Powell come out and say, 
We're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates until sometime in 2023. Why would why would they paint themselves into that corner when they have the same access to the things that we have? Right. So for a while they were data dependent, and then uh, which is you know okay, yeah. And and then and and then when they said not till 2024, they were all of a sudden time dependent. And 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 I do think that the Fed was essentially conducting verbal yield yield curve control. And they said that if we're going to say that we're not raising the Fed funds rate out to to 2024, even though that obviously can change in reality, that that was their way of verbally conducting yield yield curve control. And while, but what, what we've seen this year is it doesn't matter what they think anymore. It doesn't matter what they say in terms of the Fed funds rate because the bond market tightened three times for them this Mm -hmm. year. That's what now matters. It's how the market now perceives the trajectory of growth and inflation, not what Jay Powell says anymore, and that we've seen that this year. So he can still say he's dovish and he doesn't want to raise interest rates and whatever on QE, but the 10-year yield is going to go to where it thinks it should go, irrespective of what Jay Powell thinks and says. And I think that's what we now need to know and think about that the Fed and other central banks are just becoming more irrelevant. I mean, take the ECB that I mentioned. Well, it was a month ago when they said, we're going to front load QE because we don't like this sharp rise in interest rates. Well, once that front loading ended, rates went right back up again. As I mentioned, the German 10 years at a one-year high, notwithstanding this front loading of QE. I mean, they're now playing a game of whack-a-mole that is a different game that they're used to. They're used to, with their words and their actions, they were able to control the yield curve. Now we've seen this year, the yield curve is gaining back some of that control. And that's a frustrating game to play. So let's, we have a 20, I think we have a 25 year chart of the dollar of the Dixie, because I think that's an interesting chart. Look, I didn't see the significant move higher in the dollar that we saw, you know, the last month, month and a half, but the trajectory seems to be headed lower once again. You know, I'm still of the belief that, you know, given everything that's going on, the dollar is probably going to test that 88 level or so on the DXY. I think the dollar is extraordinarily important when you try to game out what's going to happen in markets. What are your thoughts in the dollar, Peter? Well, big picture right now. So people can say, well, well, yeah, we're printing and we have rates at zero, but look overseas. They have negative rates and they're printing too. The dollar should be okay. But the dollar is really trading off the the very high deficits that we have. When you have a trade deficit, you own a current account deficit, that means more dollars are leaving than coming in. That is a currency headwind. Europe, and you look how well the euro trades, considering all the issues that they have, uh, they have a current account surplus uh, with us. That's why the euro trades as well as it does. We have the budget deficit that is blowing out to historic levels that really has no real sign that that's going to contract in a sharp way anytime soon. That is also a dollar negative. So those are the big picture secular headwinds for the U.S. dollar that I think is, is, is going to matter and is why the dollar index will head back to those levels that you mentioned. Now, in the short term, okay, we had a little dollar bounce because Europe had troubles with their vaccine rollout, so the euro got weaker. Uh, obviously issues with Turkey that led to a, a little uh, reversion uh, in, in some emerging market currencies. But big picture, the dollar is challenged. It's going lower. 
It's just a matter of, of to what degree and, and, and what direct trajectory uh, it takes. But the, the big picture factors are definitely negative. All right. So, Peter, that brings me to um, a couple ideas you have here, how to play some of that weakness. Um, it seems like you are a gold bull at the moment and also of silver. Let's go to the gold chart here. We have uh, we have two. Uh, here's a five year chart. I just drew some lines. I hope you're OK with these lines here. Um, but then we also have um, a long term, a 20 year. Um, give us your thesis on gold. Obviously, it's related to a lot of the things that you were just talking about. But, but why now you see that downtrend that gold been in since its highs or its recent highs um, in August. What is um, your macro view saying that this is the time to get in there and buy gold? So just for context, last year, 2020, uh, even looking at calendar year 2020, so even uh, with that pullback after the August highs, silver was up 42%, gold was up about 25%. So, and, and gold at that August high last year went to its highest level ever. 5,000 years of history, gold was at an all-time high last year. So since the, uh, the, the August highs, we've obviously seen this consolidation. Uh, the dollar stopped going down. Uh, we did see that uh, real rates stopped going down. And it was enough to have uh, a correction here. Then, of course, a lot of, uh, a lot of the move in Bitcoin probably sucked some oxygen out of the room um, with, with, with gold and silver. But gold and silver, the last couple of days with this correction in Bitcoin, is actually trading well again. Now, I'm not of the, of the belief that it's Bitcoin or gold. To me, it could be both. They can complement each other. Something that's been around for 12, 13 years is not replacing something that's been around for 5,000 years. So I think that with the dollar hooking down again, with real rates uh, hooking down again, uh, that is the catalyst for this rebound in gold and silver. And I think it will continue, particularly the gold miners as well that um, have sort of been left for dead uh, in, in a love affair that most people have with the stock market. Yeah, it's, it's been a tough slog for, you know, the, the gold bulls out there, of which I am one. But I do think, you know, the worm is turning once again. So, you know, I appreciate your time. Listen, again, I think it's important for people, if you read one thing, you should read the book report. And I've said that the number of times that Peter's been on the macro setup. I said every time he's on CNBC's Fast Money, and I tell it to people that ask me, you know, who do you read? Who should I read? And it's absolutely Peter Bookvar. So, Peter, once again, on behalf of Dan and myself, thanks for joining us on the Macro Setup. Thank you, thanks. Peter. It was excellent. Thank you for having me. Um, really do. Always fun. Well, that is Peter Bookvar, the CIO of the Bleakly Advisory Group. Dan, Nathan. Any parting words as we get out of here on a Tuesday? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think it's great. You know, Peter kind of outlined the gold and the silver trade. I've heard him a couple times over the last few weeks talking about it. Um, you know, that silver chart, that looks pretty hot there. That is one heck of a long uh, five-year flag that it's making there. The gold one, you know, listen, I think that uh, Bitcoin has stolen a lot of that thunder, man. And I think that incremental buyer of gold might be thinking about opening a crypto wallet. Um, and that mm -hmm. we can leave that for another conversation. Maybe we'll have Peter and BK on and have that. It would be like a, oh. like a, like a, like a little battle there or something. But um, listen, I also think that the sentiment in gold is really bad. So, so the timing of an entry point might be really good too. Um, and, and, you know, on the broad market here, um, I think those charts speak to the fact that I think Peter laid out a lot of really um, interesting sentiment indicators. Um, the S&P looks extended. Um, the Russell looks tired. The NASDAQ composite never confirmed the highs in the S&P 500. It seems like 
there could be um, the opportunity to play from the short side finally for maybe a 5 to 10% per, uh, pullback in the stock market. What do you think, Guy Adami? Um, you know, all these things, you know, the fact that, you know, Peter mentioned it, we're 16% above the 200-day moving average in the S&P 500. That is historically extended. Now, we really haven't tested those levels, I want to say, in seven or eight months in terms of, you know, testing the 200-day. All these things line up. And, you know, we're getting to a period of time. We're getting into months where things have happened historically, might start to happen again. You mentioned Thunder, great Jackson Brown song. You love the Thunder. I love Peter Bookmar's work. Uh, you mentioned something that's hot. You know what's hot? The macro setup. You know what also is hot, Dan? Our presenting sponsor, <laughs> Nadex, one of the fastest growing exchanges in North America for binary options, call spreads, and Dan? Knockouts. Damn straight. You have a good day. We'll talk again next week. Thanks, hey, folks. folks. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of The Macro Setup. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe in podcast stores so you never miss an episode. We'll see you next week.